0: Welcome again to Grace Church of Philly, special welcome to those watching at home and around the world, uh, especially our friends in Cameroon and many other places in Africa, as well as uh, some of the Latino countries. We're thankful for uh, those who join us every Sunday. That last song we sang is just a wonderful song. It was... Grace that drew me out when I was swept away, and mercy took me in, and now I'm alive to say, great is your mercy, Lord. Great is your grace. Let's take our Bibles again and look in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that great love chapter. We're at the uh, end of the chapter. This is the fourth message on 1 Corinthians 13. If you want the other ones, they are uh, on the website or on Facebook or on YouTube or on Vimeo. Uh, Just the audio portion normally is put up on our website. But I want to talk again about love, its supremacy. But this morning I want to focus on what I'll call the permanence of love. Listen to our text as I begin at the end of verse eight. Love never ends. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, now I know in part, but then I shall know just as also I am known. And now... Abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. We've been talking about love, a certain kind of love, not sexual love or family love or friendship love, but we've been talking about the kind of love that characterizes God a sacrificial love that desires to bless others and to do good to others over the last two weeks we saw 16 qualities of that love what love looks like in life and in relationship to other people those qualities that are produced in us through the work of the spirit of god in the first message we looked at the priority of love, how, how love takes priority over anything that we can ever do or accomplish in life. All of life, all of our actions must be rooted in this kind of love. Perhaps you notice as I read the text today that the text is bracketed, that is it's sort of enveloped between two statements about love. Love never fails. The greatest of these, of faith and hope and love, the greatest of these is love. And what this part of our text is telling us is that love is not only preeminent, it is not only the priority, it is not only seen in its many perfections, but love is permanent. The kind of love that reflects the love of God never, ever ends. And if I could hope for anything this morning, my hope would be that you would leave here rejoicing in love and the permanence of love, that whatever else you are experiencing in life which may pass, Love is permanent. Whatever good you are doing in life, that will pass, but love is permanent. Whatever hardship you are facing in life, that too will pass. Love is permanent. As I studied this text, and I've thought much about this text over the years, but I have probably thought more about it this week, than in the last 45 years of my ministry. And I thought as I looked at this text that I I want to make sure I avoid the mistake of the Corinthian church. I want to avoid the mistake of simply discussing the temporary nature of spiritual gifts. That was obvious as we read through. You know, prophecy will fail and tongues will cease and knowledge will will, will pass away. But that is really not the focus of the text. Paul is only talking about that in the context of 12, chapters 12 through 14, because this church has made gifts more important than the practice of love. And so I will though I will speak about the temporary nature of gifts, hopefully I will show the preeminence of love in everything. And let me just pause for a moment to explain what I mean by supernatural gifts. I mean gifts of the Spirit that are beyond the ordinary, natural realm of human experience, such as miracles, where the natural laws of of the world are set aside. You know, that's not ordinary or natural. That's above natural, supernatural. Prophecy was supernatural. For God to speak directly to you and give you truth that you could give to someone else, that's not the ordinary human experience. Tongues, the ability to speak the truth of God in a language that you had never learned is supernatural. You know, most mission agencies have language schools, or if they don't have language schools, they require there. if you're going to France, you must learn French. And in order to do that, you need to live there, you need to take classes, you need to learn, and you don't, don't just speak. So it's supernatural to be able to speak a language that you have never taken time to learn. And the gift of knowledge, you know, not knowledge itself, but the immediate knowledge that God would grant someone in an instant. That's not ordinary. Most times, you know, we study. You know, I, I would love to be able to get up here at, uh, at, and preach on Sunday without spending 10 or 15 hours thinking about a text, and I know there are some preachers who think they can do that, but if you listen to them long enough, you realize they really can't do that. They should study some more. Those are supernatural gifts. And there are other gifts of the Spirit that are ordinary, natural, that are empowered by the Spirit. In that sense, they become supernatural, but they're ordinary natural gifts, like serving, or being a musician, or caring for others. You know, some people just naturally have a a sympathy to work with children, to work in nursing homes. That's a gift. Some people have a gift of administration. Some people have verbal gifts, you know, gifts of speaking. Uh, Sometimes they are innate, sometimes they are learned, but as a Christian, when you dedicate whatever those ordinary natural gifts are to the Spirit, they become supernatural in that sense. But they're not like the supernatural gifts that were most evident in the lifetime of Christ, in the lifetime of the apostles, and in particular periods in the Old Testament when God was doing a new work. Again, My discussion this morning is not primarily on the temporary nature of gifts. I want to keep love as the focus. And I want you to leave here rejoicing that love is primary, love is permanent, and that as Paul said earlier, this is the more excellent way. That if you want to choose the excellent way of living out your Christian life, choose to pursue love and to have the love of God flowing through your life in the most powerful way that it's possible. But as we think through this text this morning, I'm going to make a number of points about love, its preeminence, and its permanence. First of all, I want to remind us that love has always been primary, since God has always been love. Love has always been primary. Last week we saw that love will be around as long as God exists because God is love. But it's good to be reminded that not only will love always be around, it'll be there tomorrow and the next year and throughout all eternity. But love has always existed. It existed prior to the law. It existed in creation and importantly it existed prior to creation that the fact that god is love is one of the great arguments for the trinity that god is one but he's father son and holy spirit he is three persons in one true love the kind of love that we're discussing in first corinthians 13 is love that requires someone to be loved. It's not self-love. True love requires someone else to be loved. And so the question is, you know, if, if Allah, the God of Islam, is the true God, and if he's one and there is no one like him or beside him, then he probably can, could not be loved. Because love requires an object of love. It requires someone to be loved. But the triune God, listen to the words of Jesus as he prayed in John chapter 17. Jesus, as he talks to his father, he says, The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you gave me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Before this world existed, before you were here, before humans ever thought about the notion of love, love existed in eternity past as the Father loved the Son. And we could say the Son loved the Father and the Spirit and the Spirit loved the Father and the Son, and the Father loved the Son. But Jesus, as he heads toward his passion, is encouraged, is comforted by this love that the Father had for him before the foundation of the world. Theologian Gerald Bray puts it this way. He said, God cannot be loved unless there's something for him to love but if that something was not part of himself he would not be perfect the bible does not teach us that god needed the creation in order to have something to love because if that were true he could not be fully himself without it that is if if god is love but needed the creation to love then there was something lacking in God. He goes on, he says, so St. Augustine reasoned that God must be love inside himself. To his mind, to St. Augustine's mind, to his mind, the Father is the one who loves, the Son is the one who is loved, he is the beloved Son. And the Holy Spirit is the love that flows between them and binds them together. That's Augustine's way of describing it. I would simply say the Father loves the Son and the Spirit, and the Son loves the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. God is love, and before you and I came into existence, they had perfect love. And they created the world. They created you, not because they needed someone to love or they needed to be loved. They created you and I so that they could share that perfect joy of love that they have as the triune God. They want you to know what they've experienced throughout all eternity past, and will always experience, they invite us, the triune God invites us into that love. It's because you and I are created in the image of God that we have capacity for love. That is every human being. But because of sin, because of sin, distorts and effaces that image of God in us, that love is distorted and imperfect and sometimes nearly erased, but never erased because the image of God remains even in our fallen state, though it is not that perfect representation. In the gospel, when God chases after us and brings us to himself and shows us his grace and his mercy, he lets us experience his love, that God loves me. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that this is the love, love of God. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to, to be the propitiation for our sins. He wants this love to be restored in us, and that is the work of of the Spirit of God, where he takes that distorted image of God, and as Colossians and Ephesians talk about, that image of God is being renewed in us, and part of that is the capacity for true love. When I think of the love of this triune God for me as a sinner, it's a reminder, and it's also a rebuke to our desire at time for isolation from others. You know, in the COVID or post-COVID or new COVID world that we live in, COVID has created new forms of isolation which diminish the need to express love. Because when people are alone, when they're watching TV, when they're playing their video games, when they're consumed with their computer, none of these activities are selfless love. Love needs another person to be loved. And on the other hand, COVID has created circumstances which increase the need for love and not only diminishes it because of isolation but in many cases it increases the need for it because people sometimes are spending more time together with people that are close to them. People maybe whom they avoided in other circumstances but now they have to face every day And apart from this renewed, growing experience of the love of God in our lives, we will fail in the world that we're living in. Secondly, love is primary. And it's permanent, whether you have or don't have supernatural abilities, because supernatural gifts are temporary, Paul says. Again, whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. From Paul's perspective, living in the first century, he sees a time, he doesn't tell us when that time is, though there are, you know, numerous explanations for that. But he's not precise enough, but he's, precise enough to say there's a time when the gifts of prophecy and tongues and knowledge would come to an end. Again, prophecy was that direct communication from God to man, to certain men, never to everyone, but to certain people, Tongues was the gift to speak the truth in a human language, one that had never been learned, and, and often it was especially assigned to Jewish people that, that God was doing a new work among the Gentiles. And then knowledge was that, that revelatory gift in which God immediately c- communicated truth to someone. These will pass away, Paul said. You know, when we look at the early church, when we read the book of Acts, we realize that they only had partial access to God's truth. They only partially knew his will for the church. They did not have the 27 books of the New Testament. And so they depended on prophetic utterance and gifts of knowledge. But in contrast to the now in which Paul lives, Paul envisions a time when the church would have the full revelation of God's will for his church. He says, when that which is complete, that which is perfect, will come. Now, he certainly doesn't mean perfect knowledge that is absolute knowledge he means the perfect revelation of God's will for the age in which we're living we will never have perfect knowledge God is the only one who is omniscient who only who knows everything at all times in all places we will never have that we will be learning throughout eternity We'll be learning more about the goodness of God and the grace of God. And we look for that day. Among my own friends, all of whom have a high regard for the authority of Scripture, there there is an ongoing debate as to when the supernatural gifts cease. Paul says they will cease. And so there are those, I would say largely who are more Pentecostal, there are those who say, well, that which is perfect is Jesus, or the coming of Jesus, so uh, the gifts continue to the time that Jesus comes. And they believe that sincerely, and they're trying to root that in Scripture. I don't agree with that, but I understand that is their sincere commitment to Scripture, I don't believe that which is perfect is Jesus Christ, as we'll see later, and I'll explain why I I believe that. But that's one way of looking at the the cessation, the temporary nature of gifts. They end at the end of the age. There's another group that says, and this is mostly, uh, I would say most Reformed evangelicals, believe that the gifts ceased, when the canon of Scripture was closed, when God's full revelation for the church age was given. And so they believed that as revelation was increasing, you know, as Paul was writing his 12 books and John was writing his books, and and that as revelation increased, supernatural gifts of especially revelatory gifts, decreased, and at some point when God's will was made known for the church in this age, those gifts ceased. There's a third group that would say, and I would belong to this third group, that the gifts, the supernatural gifts, are not normative It is not the normal way of God's doing things in the church age. That generally they came to an end in the first century, when the Word of God was complete. Maybe not the first century, maybe the second century, maybe the third or fourth century, because actually, even though John wrote the last books of the Bible, uh, they weren't collected and affirmed, and brought together uh, in one point until the 4th century, and they really weren't made accessible to uh, you and I, the common people of this world, uh, until the, the 13th, 14th, 15th century. So I would say they're not normative. But I would say that in places in the world that are, uh, that are similar to the first century world, that is, the gospel has not been there, the Bible is not there, uh, the Word of God is not there, that God may, in those instances, until the Word of God comes and is mature, God may give those supernatural gifts. You know, when I was at Westminster Seminary, I had a, uh, a really good friend. He was Indian, from India, and you know, India has thousands of dialects, and I don't know how many languages, and he was an evangelist, and he, uh, he told me one day some of his experiences, and I knew this guy, I, he, was, he loved God, he loved the scripture, he had good theology, uh, he was godly. And he would tell me about times that he went into areas of India that spoke a dialect that he did not know. That God gave him, in that instance, the ability to communicate the gospel in a language that he had never learned. Now, I would say that is the gift of tongues. That is possible, but it's not normative. but, but God's not in a box, so th- that is how I would see it. But the, the, the point of Paul's text is that regardless of where you fall on that, whether you think they continue through the age, or whether you think they completely cease, or whether you think they're normative and perhaps possible in certain situations, Paul's point is that everyone believes they will cease. And that love will remain. Don't make too much of spiritual gifts. Don't exalt them. Don't let them be divisive in your relationship in the church. Don't make too much of it. Love your brother because love is permanent. Because if you do have extraordinary ability if you had supernatural gifts or even if you had natural gifts that were well refined and used in an excellent way that that made you look good if you thought too much about them it would put a dividing line between you and your brothers and sisters in Christ and that's contrary to love and that's what was happening in the first century church What we need in the church is to practice Colossians 3, where Paul says, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another. Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And then he says, and above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is more important than our giftedness. And you should know that if you are of the mindset that you need, you know, some powerful sign to convince you of the truth of God's Word, that that is actually a mark of weakness, not of strength. Because remember when Jesus spoke to Thomas the doubter, who needed to he said, I'm not going to believe until I put my fingers in his side and in his hands, until I, uh, you know, prove it to me. And Jesus looked at him and he said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, yet believe. And as I mentioned before, John, at the end of his book, says many other signs truly did Jesus, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Read the Word of God and believe it by faith. That is a greater blessing. But thirdly, love is primary regardless of your immaturity or maturity in the Word of God. Verses 9 and 10, Paul says this, we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Literally, it says, we know out of a portion. It's like Paul envisions, uh, you know, an eight slices of an uh, apple pie, you know, a whole apple pie, but he's only got a piece of it. We are knowing out of a part. We don't have the whole thing. Because that's what prophecy and knowledge, that's what those revelatory gifts were. You did not have, you had the 66 books of the Old Testament, but you did not have the 27 books. The last one wasn't written until about 95 A.D. We know out of a portion So in some sense, we could say that the first century church was an immature church when it came to the knowledge of the Word of God. They did not have the whole Scripture. I like to think of it as this huge library, and in that library there are 27 books. And in the first century, sometimes you didn't even have a whole book. You had a page out of the book. You knew out of a portion. And that's how the apostle describes the first century. Now we're knowing in part. This this is in the progress of God's revelation, this is where we are. But when that which is perfect will come, and that which is perfect or complete is in contrast to that which is out of a portion. When the whole will come, and again, the whole is not all of God's knowledge, it's not perfect knowledge because that never comes to any of us, even in our glorified state. But he's talking about God's will for the church in this age. And he envisioned a time when God would be done speaking to his church because he knew what Jesus said. And he knew, if he didn't write it, what the writer of Hebrews would say, that in in former times, God spoke in times past in many ways, in different ways, to the prophets, to the fathers, but now God has spoken through his son that Jesus is the final and full revelation. And Jesus said to his apostles, when my spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth that is everything that God wants his church to know for the age in which which the church exists, Jesus sent his spirit to guide his apostles so that they would know all of that truth and in God's providence, through the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, they wrote that down. And now we can say with Paul that the church is built Upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, what they wrote about about Jesus Christ and the truth that, that, that they taught. The first century church was immature in that sense. And in some sense, we are, we have the capacity for greater maturity because we have the full, complete revelation of God. But Paul's point is this, it doesn't matter where you are in your maturity or immaturity of the Bible, being knowledgeable of Scripture or being ignorant of Scripture is not an excuse for not having love, that love is permanent. Love is the priority, and it exists before the church age, in the early stages of the church age, and the more mature stages of the church age. Love always exists, and the fact is, it's not how much of the Bible you know, though you should know as much as you can. You need to know the God of the Bible, And to be united to him through the Spirit, because that's what gives you the capacity for love. And as John will say, if you don't have love, it's because you don't know God. It's not because you don't have a seminary education. It's because you don't know God. Let me make two other points quickly love along with faith and hope abides through the entire church age that's what he says in verse uh, verse 13 and now and Paul's talking about his time first century time the time of supernatural happenings now in this age faith hope and love are abiding that is throughout the church age wherever you find faith you will find hope and you will find love and wherever you find hope in the future promises of God you will find faith in the word of God and love for God and the people of God that these three like the 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 trinity of moral excellence, these three, faith, hope, and love, are abiding. They're always there in every age of the church, infancy to maturity, you will find faith, hope, and love. In every ethnicity of the church, Asian, African, Latino, Middle Eastern, Caucasian, you will find faith, hope, and love. And in every circumstance of the church, whether it's prosperity and poverty, persecution or liberty, you will find faith, hope and love. Wherever the gospel is preached, wherever the gospel is believed, you will find faith, hope and love. But the fifth point and final point, when faith and hope are no longer needed, Love remains. Love is always the greater. The greatest of these is love because love is of God. And God has always been and has always been love. Love is greater than faith and hope because love is the nature of God. God never needed faith. He never needed hope. He knows everything, past, present, future. He never questioned anything. He never learned anything. He never wished for anything or hoped for anything. Faith and hope are not qualities of God. But when faith, our faith, becomes sight, we will continue to love like God loves forever. And when our hope becomes a fulfilled reality, we will continue to love for all eternity. Today, we live in faith and hope and love, and we pursue love above all things because one day, faith is not needed anymore, and hope is not needed anymore. But love goes on forever. Now, like many of you, I have memorized this chapter. I don't know how many times riding along in my car I've quoted it. And yet I know how I fail repeatedly to give it the priority. That God intends. Pursue love. If you will know this true love, you must first respond to the love of God shown at the cross. Unless you have looked at Jesus Christ on that cross, dying in your place for your sin, you do not understand this kind of love. The kind of love that would sacrifice his son, that Christ would give himself willingly because he loved the church and gave himself for it. You do not know true love until you look at the cross of Jesus Christ and see him dying, and you say, that was for me. And I don't deserve it. But God loved me enough to die for me. When you confess that, when you believe that, something extraordinary happens in your life. The Spirit of God comes in you in some mysterious way. He brings you into union with the triune God. Jesus says, Father, you are in me and I am in them. We've got this mysterious union with this God who has been loved forever and will be. Love forever. I hope you want this. I hope you will pray with me right now and tell God you want this above all things. You want to love as God loves. Pray with me, please. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. How extraordinary is your love, O God. Thank you for loving us. Even while we were yet sinners, you demonstrated that love as Christ died for us. Forgive us for questioning your love, for allowing our needs, our circumstances, our pains to cause us to question your love. Forgive us for not pursuing your love, for thinking that being important or being recognized or being successful somehow is more important than loving you and loving others. Forgive us. Humble us before you that we might pursue the more excellent way of love. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.